Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. This is a program where you get to say what you think the Bible teaches on any particular thing. We'll discuss it. The only rule we have is the Bible is the final authority. We're not going to, we're not going to say, well, this is the truth. This is what we're going to do because this is what we like or this is what's politically correct or this is what we think is best, or this will bring in the most people. It's going to be, what does the Bible say? That's going to settle all issues. And if I settle an issue and it's not from the Bible, I want you to call me on that because I need your help. You need to correct me on that. Because if I'm teaching something different than what the Bible says, then, of course, the censor of Galatians 1, 6 through 9, will come upon me. If I teach something different than Paul, what Paul taught, the New Testament gospel, I'm going to be accursed, eternally condemned, just like anybody else. Last week, we were talking about what does the Bible say about this question? Does it matter what we believe, what we teach, how we live, how we worship, and where we go to church? And we're not going to repeat everything we said last night, but I think if we turn to Revelation 22, 18 and 19, it can kind of help summarize everything we said last week. Here's Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify to every man that heareth the words of the book, prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, I think John is talking about the book of Revelation in particular, but other passages like in Deuteronomy teach this same principle about the Bible as a whole. If we add to or take away from the word of God. Well, this says if we take away from the word of God, our part will be taken out of the book of life, meaning we lose our salvation. <laughs> Just on this program, a lot of people listening think you can't lose your salvation if you're a Christian. Well, how could this verse be true if that's true? Because it says your part will be taken out of the book of life if you take away from the word of God. Well, if you're in the book of life, that means you're saved. If your part is taken out of the book of life, that means you're not saved anymore. You, and you can't be taken out of the book of life unless you were in there to start with. So you're saved. You take away from the word of God. You're not in the word of uh, the book of life and you're not in the book of life anymore. Uh, you're not saved anymore. Once saved, always saved is conclusively proven wrong from this one passage. Now, let's ask the question as it relates back to our original topic. Does this passage teach that it matters what we believe and practice in religion? Well, certainly it does, because if we add to or take away from the word of God, it says our part's going to be taken out of the book of life, meaning we'll lose our salvation. So it matters a great deal what we believe and teach and practice in religion. Our soul's destiny depends upon it. How could you add to the word of God? That's one of the things this is condemning. Well, the, the Mormons do it literally. In their Bible, you just don't have Old Testament and New Testament. You also have Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. They literally add to the word of God. They come under the censor of this passage. But what about a person who adds to the word of God, not by adding books and things into the Bible itself, but he teaches, for example, sprinkling for baptism is okay. Of course, Romans 6 verse 4 says we're buried with him, with Christ in baptism. So we know baptism is supposed to be a burial. When you take somebody out to the graveyard and bury them, do you sprinkle a little dirt on their head or put them all the way up under the ground? Well, we know what buried means then, don't we? So when we're going to bury somebody in baptism, that's going to mean we sprinkle a little water on their head, put them all the way up under the water. I think we know what buried means. We're going to put them all the way up under the water. So if somebody's sprinkling for baptism, 
and saying that's okay for baptism, aren't they in effect adding to the word of God, even though they're not like the Mormons and putting extra books in their Bible? You see, they're adding to the word of God. What about taking away from the word of God? Well, we talked last week a little bit about women preachers. Suppose a woman wanted to be a preacher, so she took her scissors and cut out the two or three or four verses in the Bible that would forbid her from preaching from the pulpit. That would be literally taking away from the word of God. But suppose she didn't do that. Suppose she didn't take her scissors and literally cut those verses out, but she just ignored the passages that say it's wrong for a woman to speak in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. For example, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says a woman is not to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. Suppose she just ignored those passages. Wouldn't she, in effect, be taking away from the word of God? I think she would. If you have a Bible question or comment, the lines are wide open. Give us a call at 877 877- 655-6755-877-655-6755. Here's a passage I would like you to consider in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 13, 7-10. Did you ever see the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, an Indiana Jones movie? It's like a lot of movies like that where they have one or two facts from the Bible correct, but the rest of it's just fiction. Well, the part they had correct that's in the Bible is Indiana was going after, he's an archaeologist, he's going after this Ark of the Covenant. Well, there was such a thing called the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Ark simply means box. It was like this box, rectangular, I believe, if I remember the, the dimensions correctly. It probably looked, kind of looked like, on, you know, at least the size and dimensions looked kind of like a coffin. Anyway, they carried in this box holy things like the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. But God had told them, I never want you to touch this box with human hands. As a matter of fact, he had them constructed originally where he had construct a box with four rings on the side so that they could put two long poles through those rings and then they could use the, the ends of those poles would in effect make four handles so that two or four men could pick up the box using the ends of the poles as handles. They could carry the ark and move it around without ever touching the ark. Bottom line, they weren't supposed to touch the ark with human hands. Now, I want us to read 1 Chronicles 13, back in the Old Testament, starting in verse 7. It says, They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, with singing, with harps, with psalteries, with timbrels, with cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came into the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. Now, here we have the ark being carried on a cart on top of some oxen's back. The oxen stumble. It looks like to us that the ark is going to fall off this cart. If it falls and hits the ground, it might break. So he reaches up there and he touches the ark just long enough to steady it. Did he do something good or bad? Well, I think he probably had good motivation. He's trying to keep the ark of God from falling and breaking. But you'll remember God had said not to touch the ark with human hands. So we read verse 10. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, struck him dead, because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. Because he touched the ark, even though he probably was trying to help God, but because he did something God said not to do, God was very displeased. Now, what can we learn from this Old Testament story? Well, we don't have to worry about touching or not touching the ark of the covenant. The New Testament never tells us one way or the other. Besides, unless Indiana Jones finds this ark, it's probably long since been destroyed. So we don't have to worry about any of that, touching the ark or not touching the ark. But here's something I think we can learn from this. In our day and age, in the New Testament times, 
if God tells us not to do something, don't do it even if you think you're helping God. Even if you think you're helping the cause of Christ, don't do it if God says not to do it. I think this the thing we've been talking about, women preachers, is a perfect illustration of this. There's maybe some women out there preaching for the money or for the attention, but I've got to believe some of the women out there preaching from the pulpit in the church services are sincere. They think they're helping the cause of Christ. Does that make it right? No. Don't do something God has said not to do, even if you think you're helping God. We learned that definitively from this story of Uzzah touching the ark in 1 Chronicles 13, don't we? So does this passage help us to see that it matters what we practice in religion or that it doesn't matter? I think we see it does matter, doesn't it? It matters a great deal. Uzzah lost his life because evidently he did what God told him not to do. Even though he thought he was helping God, he did what God told him not to do, and God was very displeased. One more passage to help summarize this thing that we're trying to get across, that it matters what we believe and teach and practice in religion. John 8, 31 and 32. We read on this program quite frequently. Here's what Jesus said. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, we have a lot of people out today in our religious world claiming to be Jesus' disciples, but they all teach different things. I mean, there are hundreds of different churches, and all those churches represent different teachings. Jesus said you're only a true disciple if you continue in his word. So people who practice, allow women preachers, who or allow who practice sprinkling babies for baptism and gay marriage, different things like that. They're not continuing in, in the word of God. No, they're not. So therefore, they're not a true disciple. They may claim to be a follower, a disciple of Christ, but they're not a true disciple because they're not continuing in his word. And those that continue in his word, he said, verse 32 of John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free from sin, verse 34. The only way we're going to be made free from sin is if we follow the truth. False doctrine won't do it. Only following the truth will make us free from sin. That just, those two verses just nail, nail it. It matters what you believe and teach in practice, in religion. There's no doubt about it. Beth from New Mexico, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, um, the same the same sentiment about women speaking in the church. And I, I mean, I've always been taught that the woman should be silent in the church. But it was brought before Andrew Farley today, who... Uh, went back to the time and the way that things were done then, um, like the first verse that you refer to, I believe was the Colossians. And it, you know, it said for the woman to, um, if she had a question to ask her husband at home, not to speak in the church. And the reason for that was, is the way that the churches were done is because the women would be on one side and the men would be on the other. And if she, you know, suddenly got an idea, she would have to, you know, yell across to her husband. And then others would join in and it would create chaos. And that's why Paul said not to do that. Um, The second time for women um, to be silent in the church um, or not to be a a pastor or anything, you know, and I mean, brought forth the, the Verses where women were prophetesses, you know, women taught the word of God. And uh, hey, Beth, Beth, let me ask you something. When Andrew Farley told you about the women, the men sitting on different sides of the church and calling out like that, 
how did he know that that's really what was going on? Did he did he did he prove that from the Bible, or did did he prove it from the Bible, or did he just make it up? Yeah, I would assume by history. I don't know, but no. But there, um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me mention about history, you? Beth. Let me. There's confusion about history. The only history books that were written by people who lived back in those days are like Josephus. He's a historian that wrote in those days. He wrote nothing about the Christian church assemblies. He was a Jew, mainly writing about the Jews. Now, he did touch on Christ because Jesus Christ was a Jew, but he said nothing about the Christian's assembly. So anybody writing a history about that time was writing it 2,000 years later or at least 1,800 years later. So, Beth, if they're writing a history of something that occurred 1,800 years before, then they're basically just making it all up. So the people, what they do is they make up all kinds of things out of nowhere just to try to get around what passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. There's absolutely no evidence that what Andrew Farley said is true. When he says it's from history, but somebody just made it up, somebody who lived 1,800 years later that has no clue what was going on back then, Beth. Do you see my point? Okay, I am going to reach out to him and find out where he got that from. I mean, it doesn't really matter one way to me or the other. I'm not a preacher, and I don't have a, a woman pastor, but um, good. I know that my good to hear that, is not sister, a person. You know, he's I'm, good. I'm a, glad to hear that. Person. I'm glad to hear that. Let me just read 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, because it's so clear. As a matter of fact, I think it's the clearest verse on any topic in the Bible. It says, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them have their husbands at home, for it's a shame for women to speak in the church. I think Andrew is doing what he normally does. He reads a verse in the Bible, and then he makes something up to try to get around what it says. Wouldn't it just be easier, Beth, if we just took this verse, and I know you do, you say you don't, you're not a woman preacher, just took it for what it says, wouldn't that be a whole lot simpler just to believe it just as it reads instead of making all kinds of things up to try to get around it? Yes, I, I do agree with that. Yeah. Um, and when somebody says said, this is what happened know. in history, it's almost always going to be something they made up or or got from somebody else who made up because nobody who who was living in those days that knew what was going on wrote it down. The only history we have from those times is the Bible. So if you can't find it in the Bible, it's not really history. It's somebody just made it up. Okay? Gotcha. Gotcha. Beth, is this is this uh, Elizabeth from Farmington? Yes. Okay. Looking forward to our study next week, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm on appreciate the road your call. <laughs> All right. Appreciate your call. So I know Elizabeth because we're scheduled to have a Bible study this Tuesday. Uh, phone Bible study. And by the way, if you'd like to have a free one-hour phone Bible study, like I'm going to do with Beth on Tuesday, then uh, you just call or text me. I'll give you the number at the end of the program. You can call or text me, and we'll set up a, a free one-hour phone Bible study with you at your convenience. So we've been talking about does it matter what we believe, what we teach, what we practice in religion. Well, let me ask you a uh, uh, Talk about a particular thing, and let's see if it matters. A lot of preachers out there preach this. All you got to do to be saved is accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you'll be saved. Haven't you heard that many, many times? Is that really true? 
And, and does it really matter that somebody teaches that when it's not even in the Bible? Have you ever read that in the Bible, except Jesus Christ is your personal Savior and you'll be saved? Well, if you hadn't read it in the Bible, why would you accept it? And does it matter that people are, can just talk about things that people can do to be saved when they're not really found in the Bible? I think that it matters. But in the meantime, give us a call. If you have a Bible question or comment, the number to call is 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment right now is 877-655-6755. So, you know, I guess we really do have to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior to be saved. If you mean by that what the Bible means by, by what the Bible means. For example, if you mean by accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what Acts 8.37 says, what Philip told the eunuch, if thou believest with all thine heart, then, then that would be something you need to do to be saved. You won't find that phrase anywhere in the Bible except Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But if you mean by the, the same thing as what the Bible says, believe with all your heart, then it is a good thing to do. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, and many other Bible, many other Bible passages teach such. You have to believe in Jesus with all your heart to be saved. But is that the question would be then, is that all we have to do to be saved? If you mean by accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, believe with all your heart, Acts 8.37, then you do have to be, do it to be saved. But is that all you have to do to be saved? Meaning, are we saved by faith only? Now, let me ask you this question that should pop into everybody's head right off the bat, but maybe it doesn't. If we're saved by faith only, where does that leave repentance? Again, if we're saved by faith only, that implies you don't have to repent to be saved. But Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Hmm. Sounds like to me you do have to repent. And what about a passage like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Clearly, you, clearly you got to repent to avoid perishing from both of those passages. So it's absolutely a true conclusion from the Bible from a number of passages you have to repent to be saved. But if you're saying all you got to do is accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, meaning all you got to do is believe, you're leaving out repentance. And that would mean the gay church people are saved. They believe in Jesus, but they don't, they're not willing to repent of their sin. That would mean they're saved. No, no. We see the Bible doesn't teach you're saved by faith only, that all you got to do is believe. Besides accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you also have to repent of your sins. You have to repent of your sins according to these passages. And let's notice another passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Here we read, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. It says you've got to know Jesus. You sure do, according to that passage. You have to know him, believe in him, in him confidently. But it also says you have to obey the gospel. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. So you got to not only know God, believe in him, have faith. You have to obey the gospel. Most churches don't even talk about obeying the gospel. Most members of those churches have no clue what it means to obey the gospel. And this is to avoid God's flaming fire vengeance, you have to obey the gospel. But most people in most churches don't even have a clue what obeying the gospel means, how it's defined by the Bible. We have to know God, believe in him, believe in him, in him confidently, and we have to obey the gospel. You see, it's, you have to, 
you can't just just accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You also have to obey the gospel to be saved. Another passage that teaches we're not saved at the moment we believe, faith only, is Romans 10, 13 and 14. Let me read that. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You know, that clearly makes calling upon the name of the Lord essential to salvation. But it's not the same as belief. If you're equating Jesus, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior is equating that with believing in Jesus, calling on the name of the Lord, according to this, comes after believing. Because it says you've got to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And then it says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, you can't call upon the name of the Lord for salvation until you believe in him first. Two different things. You believe in him first, then you call upon God to save you. Hmm. Clearly shows you're not saved by faith alone. Clearly shows you're not saved at the point of faith. Clearly shows you're not saved just by accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you mean by that believing in Jesus. It takes more than just believing in Jesus. You have to repent of your sin, and you have to call upon the name of the Lord. But what does calling upon the name of the Lord mean? Again, I think most churches don't talk about that. Most people in most churches don't have a clue what calling upon the name of the Lord means. But you got to do it to be saved, Romans 10, 13. So you better know what it means to do it. How else can you do it if you don't know what it means? Let's go to Acts 22, 16 and prove from that that calling upon the name of the Lord simply means doing what God said to do to call upon him, to ask him to save you. Here's what Acts 22, 16 says. Ananias talking to Saul, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So how do you call upon the name of the Lord according to that verse? You, you're baptized. I mean, if Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, and he does, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, then how would you ask God, how would you call upon God to save you? Well, you wouldn't do it verbally because theoretically, if you ask God verbally to save you, he would just say, I've already told you what to do to be saved. Believe and be baptized and you'll be saved, Mark 16, 16. So do that. So the way that you ask God to save you, the way that you call upon God to save you is by doing what he said to do to be saved. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So the way you ask God to save you, the way you call upon God to save you is by believing and being baptized. Saul had already believed three days earlier on the road to Damascus. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Most people would say, oh, you're saved. He, he believed in Jesus. No, he believed in Jesus, but now it's at least three days later, Ananias is telling him to do something to get his sins washed away. So his sins weren't washed away when he believed. We're all agreed it's the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. The question is, when does the blood of Christ wash away our sins? Well, in the case of Saul, who later became known as the Apostle Paul, his sins weren't washed away when he believed in Christ but not until at least three days later when he called upon God to forgive him by being baptized. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord here is equated with being baptized. He had already believed. Jesus said, he that believeth is baptized shall be saved. So he needed to be baptized, in effect, to ask God to save him from his sins. And that's exactly what he did. You know, you can see the same thing from Acts 2, 21 and verse 38. That calling upon the name of the Lord means doing what God said to do to be saved. Let me show you that. In Acts 2.21, he 
Here's the third place where we have the phrase calling upon the name of the Lord. It says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's kind of in the, toward the beginning or the middle of Peter's sermon here on the day of Pentecost. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But notice verse 38, Peter said to some believers, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Was Peter telling them two different ways of being saved? One is calling upon the name of the Lord and two is repenting and being baptized for the remission of sins? No. He's saying you need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved from your sins, but he's telling them in verse 38, here's how you do that. The way you call upon God, the way you ask God to save you from your sins is by repenting and being baptized. So a person has to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It's not faith only. It's not accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior only. It's also repenting and being baptized for the remission of sins. You've got to be baptized to be saved from your sins. Appreciate you listening tonight. If you would like that free one-hour phone Bible study, give me a call or text me at 256-682-9753. 256-682-9753.